Gospel of John chapter 14. This chapter begins. Jesus Christ is speaking. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know. And the way, ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him. And have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me... The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep. My commandments. You know, when Jesus Christ was in the upper room that night that I just read about, he told the disciples that he was not going to leave them orphans. Uh, that he was going to send another comforter so that they would never be left alone. And uh, he would take care of them. That was just uh, in the same passage in which he promised us that he is going away to prepare a place for us where we will be with him for all of eternity. Back in Canada, in the um, ministry that my wife and I had there with the church that we had planted, uh, there was a hospital in town. It was known as the St. Thomas Psychiatric Hospital. And uh, there were a lot of people there in the hospital that were very troubled. And I was invited to go and visit with a gentleman. I remember going into the hospital and uh, finding the man in his room, he uh, lived there. Uh, it was a residency, and uh, and it was just a small room and a and a single bed. 
and an end table with a lamp on it. And on the end table, there was a picture of an 18-year-old girl who I learned that day was his daughter. And um, this man was in the psychiatric hospital because he had attempted suicide. And as I spent some time with him that day, I learned a little bit about uh, why he had attempted to commit suicide. And it was because his 18-year-old daughter had committed suicide. And the reason she committed suicide is because her dad was a drunk. And after 18 years of living with a drunk as a dad, she couldn't take it any longer. And she committed suicide. And there in that little room was a man who had a shattered life and a broken heart. And he had that picture of the love of his life, his 18-year-old daughter, that he had driven to the point of despair. And as a result, he was at the point of despair. You know, despair is a horrible word. It's a terrible word. When one is so overcome with their problems, defeated by life, that they finally give up on life and they decide that the pain of living is worse than the pain of dying. And so they attempt to take their life. They are in despair. They have no hope. There are no answers. Life has become so miserable that they would rather not live. Job said in Job 14.1 that man that is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. Have you found that to be true in your life? Have you had your share of trouble? Have you had your share of difficulties, be they health-related, financially related, whether it's work, home, personal to yourself? Have you had enough trouble in life that you found yourself at times wondering, what does the future hold? Is there any hope when when life seems to cave in around you and you have no place else to turn, where do you turn? How do you handle trouble and keep that trouble from mounting up to the point of despair in your life? Well, I find an answer in Psalms. In Psalm 27, the psalmist said something that, uh, that registered to me years ago. He said, Psalm 27:13. he said, I had fainted. He was at the point of just collapsing. The problems in his life were unbearable. And he said, I was at the point where I couldn't go on. And he said, I would have fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He said, I would have given up. I would have been in despair. I would have totally collapsed had I not believed enough to look out into the future and see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He looked to heaven. He looked to eternity. He looked to what's in front of him. He looked to the joy, the bliss, the comfort, the peace. He looked at all of the answers in heaven. And because of heaven, he was able to not 
faint and collapse under the weight of the pressure of the day. Well, that's what I see in the upper room. Jesus Christ is there. The, the apostles are around him there in the upper room. Jesus knows that he's only hours away from that very group of individuals deserting him and running. He knows he's only hours away from Roman soldiers pulling him into court, a mock court, a phony trial. He knows that he's only hours away from the scourge that will rip his body into pieces. He knows he's only hours away from being nailed to a cross and put up between heaven and earth under a blazing sun to suffer hour after hour. And he knows that when those disciples run from him and see what happens to him, that their world is going to shatter. He was their hope. He was their dreams. He, he was the one that, that sustains them day to day. And they're going to watch him suffer and die. And he knows they will be pushed to the point of despair. They will fear for their lives. They will run and hide lest what happened to Jesus happens to them. And at that point of despair, at that point of great trouble, Jesus Christ said to them, Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. He repeated it later in the chapter. If you're there in John 14, you can see it again in verse number 27. He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, Jesus drew attention to a great need that would be in their lives as a result of the trouble, as all the events and circumstances that would surround them. The great need, the great uh, need that was going to present itself is that they were going to be troubled. I like that word troubled. Uh, I find it interesting, I guess, because I read years ago that that word translated troubled is best uh, visualized if you were to open up the lid of a washing machine while it's running and watch the agitator trouble the water. As a little boy, I learned how to do that. I've gotten in trouble with some moms mentioning that from the pulpit because their kids learn how to do that. How you can keep it agitating after you open the lid. But I figured out how to do that. And, and I can open the lid and I can watch that agitator. And that water going all over the place just agitated around. And Jesus Christ said, that's what your heart's going to be like. It's going to come at you from every side. You're going to be so afraid. And I'm telling you, don't be so agitated and fearful. Because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I am, you will be also. The word afraid, he said, let not your heart be agitated, stirred up, troubled. Neither let it be afraid, timid, cowardice, afraid to say what you really think, afraid to say what you really believe. Because in the world in which you live, if you reveal what you really think, that's not going to go over well with the culture around you. If you said what you really believe, 
That's not going to go over well. And so cowardice and timidity and fear begins to capture our hearts. Don't be agitated. Don't be cowardly and timid and afraid. These are difficult times. Yes, by the way, I forgot to mention that. If you didn't get a worksheet, thank you for reminding me of that. If you didn't get a worksheet, uh, then uh, the, the ushers have got some there in their hands. Flag them down. I see some around the room. Grab one of the worksheets. I apologize for forgetting to mention that. So the, the danger is the events of life leave us agitated and cowardly. And Jesus said, the solution is a place prepared for you. Hey, we're not going to be here very long. No, I'm not talking about this morning. We're not going to be here very long. This world's not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We're only going to be here for a short spell. We're going to exist forever. But we're not going to exist here forever. But the short span of time we exist here must be lived, captivated by the emotion and the joy and the confidence of where we're going to be forever. Jesus said the solution is, I have a place that I'm preparing for you. And where I am, there you're going to be also. You see, you gain strength and security and victory over despair regardless of the size of the trouble. Only when you think, you mentally train yourself to think often about the condition of what you will experience forever. It's the ability. The psalmist said, I would have fainted. I would have thrown in the towel and given up. If I had not believed to see the goodness of the Lord out there in the land of the living. And so when we think about heaven, that has an amazing impact on our emotional lives. An amazing impact on our ability to, to sustain the troubles and the trials around us without going into despair. There was a little girl that had been raised in the city. She'd never been outside the city. And so she'd never seen a night that there weren't street lights obscuring the brilliance of a starry sky. And one day she was out with her parents on a vacation or whatever in some part of the country where, where there are no cities and there are no street lights. And that particular night, it was a brilliant night. The star, the, the sky was dark and the stars, you could almost reach up and grab one. The brilliance. And the little girl looked up for the first time in her life. She saw a country clear night. And she looked up and she said, oh, ma, if heaven's that beautiful on the wrong side, think about what it must be like on the right side. And when we think about what it's like on the right side, where we're going to be forever, that has a powerful impact on our ability to handle the controversies of life that we endure in the present. The disciples are going to watch him be beaten. They're going to watch him be crucified. And the solution to their mental health 
will be to focus on the place that Jesus Christ would prepare for them. So you see, one through five, I want to give you five descriptions of heaven. You can see some verses in Hebrews, Revelation, and Second Peter. So we're going to bounce around in our Bible a little bit, and then we'll end perhaps back here in John chapter 14. But I want you to get a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. What will heaven be like? There are books written about heaven. There are lots of questions people have about heaven. What does the Bible tell us heaven is going to be like? Well, let's go over to Hebrews chapter number 11. Hebrews chapter number 11. There's a statement here about heaven that gives us the first description of what heaven will be like. I'm looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 10 and verse number 16. This is the chapter of faith in your Bibles. It's a list of great heroes of the faith, how they lived by faith, and the impact that living by faith had on their lives. In verse number 10 and 16, the focus is on Abraham. Verse number 10 says, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then if you skip over to verse number 16, but they, but now they desire a better country that is an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. I want you to notice the emphasis, the phrase that is used to describe heaven. Heaven is described as a city in Revelation chapter number 21. That same word is used, and it kind of comes into focus talking about the new Jerusalem. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 9, the Bible says, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's a city. One of the descriptions of heaven is that one of its components is a city. Now, what's a city? A city is where a whole bunch of people live. When the Bible talks about heaven being a city, it's talking about a a large group of people in a concentrated area. This would be an emphasis on the inhabitants of heaven. The people that live there. There's lots of people in a small place. The saints of all the ages. You know, there's a lot of people that are going to be in heaven. Revelation 19.1 calls them much people. Revelation 19.6 calls them a great multitude. Revelation chapter 5 numbers them as 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Revelation 7 speaks of it as a great multitude which no man can number. You know, heaven's going to be a crowded place. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven. It is a city of a massive amount of people that are going to be there. You say, well, I thought the, I thought the, uh, the, the road to hell was broad. Many there be that go in there at, but the road to heaven is narrow and few there be that find it. Well, that's, that's what it's like uh, at any point in history. I mean, Jesus told us that. Uh, that's true. You look around today and it seems like most people are going to hell and few are going to heaven. Spurgeon used to preach that there'd be more people in heaven than there would be in hell. Now, the Bible didn't tell us that, but that was, his, that was his personal opinion, and he used to preach that in London, England. 
back a couple, back a, a hundred and some odd years ago. More people in heaven than in hell. Now, why? Well, because Colossians 1 says Jesus is preeminent over all. And he just couldn't see that Satan would have more people under his domain than Jesus would have over his domain. And then there's all of the, the babies, all the, the children, all the ones who died in their infancy before they reached to an age of being able to be accountable for their sin and to know to trust Jesus Christ. And then there's, there's the tribulation period revival. You read the book of Revelation and read about the great revival and the multitudes that will be saved during the tribulation period. And then you take the millennial kingdom, 1,000 years of babies being born, raised up, getting married, having babies, raised up, getting married, having babies. A thousand years is a long time. A lot of people get born in a thousand years. Jesus Christ will be on earth. Satan will be in the bottomless pit bound up. Jesus Christ will be reigning from Jerusalem. We will see him. We will see the marks on his body that, that remind us of the price that he paid on Calvary. And for a thousand years, people are going to get saved by the droves. When it's all said and done, there's going to be a lot of people in heaven. The saved of the ages, those who never got to an age to be able to be saved. And all of the tribulation saints and all of the millennial kingdom saints, we are on the victory side. <laughs> Someone said, are you in the minority or majority? Well, we look around the world around us today and we say, well, it seems like right now we're in the minority. Someone noted that Noah was in the minority because only he and his family got on the ark. And someone said, what do you mean minority? He's only in the minority if you count before the flood. If you count after the flood, he was in the majority. We are in the majority. When it's all said and done, heaven is going to be a place of a multitude of people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We will be in a crowd of people. It is an amazing city. I want you to see a second description of heaven. You'll find this in Second Peter. Just back a little bit from Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 11. The Bible says, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Did you notice? Heaven is going to be a kingdom. We read that same thing in Revelation 22, verse number 3 uh, to verse number 5. The Bible talks about, about the throne of God and that we will serve Him. You see, there is in heaven an authority structure. It is a kingdom and there is an authority structure. The authority structure is going to be Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over His heaven. And, you know, when you stop and think about a righteous government, a righteous government, a day in which politics are holy, a day in which law is obeyed, a day in which there is no opposition party, the party in control, the majority party is Jesus Christ and we will reign with him. Heaven is going to be a place where there are no political shenanigans, where there are no political 
maneuvering. Jesus Christ will rule and reign in his kingdom and we will serve with him in his kingdom. It has an authority structure in which God will reign supreme. And then there's another description of heaven. I find it in Revelation chapter number two. Heaven is a city which emphasizes the inhabitants, the great host of people. Heaven is a kingdom which emphasizes the politics that Jesus Christ will rule and reign. In Revelation chapter 2 and in verse number 7, the Bible says that in the last half of the verse, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And in Revelation 22, the Bible talks about the river of life that flows out of the throne of God and the tree of life that will be on either side. The Bible talks about the paradise, the delights of heaven. It's going to be a delightful place. There's going to be a fresh, sparkling river of life that flows out of the throne of God will give us perfect satisfaction. There will be a tree of life that will give us perfect provision, all the manners of fruit. Heaven is a place of delightful paradise. Someone said there'll be no boldness, bifocals, bridges, bulges, bowed legs, or bunions in heaven. Because there is perfect paradise. And all will be well. Tears are wiped away. All the former things are passed away. It's going to be an awesome place. And I'm going to be there forever. I've got a few years left here, perhaps, but I've got eternity up there. And a little bit of discomfort down here doesn't even put a drop in the bucket compared to the enormous amount of joy and peace and satisfaction that awaits me when I live with God forever. The paradise of heaven. Now let me give you a fourth description of heaven. Heaven, in Hebrews chapter 11 takes on perhaps my almost favorite of the list. Hebrews 11, verse 14, the Bible says they say, they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. That is an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. The word translated country, he's, they're looking for, they're mindful of that country. They, they declare that they seek a country. The word country has the connotation of my homeland, as if I'm on a trip. I'm, I'm in a different part of the world, but I'm longing to get home. I'm longing to go back to my country that I came from. I'm longing to go back home. I want you to understand that one of the great characteristics of heaven is heaven to you will be home. What does that word mean to you? Home, your native land, your homeland. Home with all its memories, family, friends, experiences. What are your memories of home? When I stop and think about home, my mind is flooded with memories. They start way back in the 1950s and 1960s growing up in Burke on the other side of Fairfax County. Oh, we had 
cow fields on three sides of our house on Guinea Road. Two sides were filled with, with uh, pasture land for a herd of dairy cattle. And a third side was wooded in fields where there was a, a bunch of black Angus beef cows. Now, we didn't, we didn't mess with the black Angus beef cows too much. They looked a little bit more than what we were ready to tangle as little boys. We did chase the dairy cattle around a time or two through the fields. And then across the road were 400 acres of woods where you could get lost for the day and have the time of your life. Oh, we can, I can remember the hours that we would spend in the woods across the road. My brothers, my sister and I. I can, I can remember coming upon an old family cemetery buried in the middle of these woods that were long since forgotten and grown up. The weeds, the trees, the saplings. We, we looked at the tombstone and it was one of the family members of the Fairfax family. They're buried deep in the woods. I remember one day we found a, 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 a wagon, some kind of a big cart. A big iron steel, iron wheels, wide wheels stood about this tall. And, 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 and then an a, a iron stem. Of course, all the wood had long since been rotted off it. And my brothers and my cousins and I, we got that thing. And we decided we're going to take this thing home. Dad will like this. We're going to take this thing home. And so we, we fought through the woods. We pushed over stuff. We made a path. We, we got that thing out to Guinea Road. And then my brothers and I and my cousins, I imagine it was a sight to see that bunch of boys, little boys, uh, carrying that, pulling that wagon back home. That old wagon sat in our yard till all of us were married and gone. I think the last thing that happened to us is my brother Loaded it up on a trailer and took it to Greenville, South Carolina. And I think it's in his backyard. Memories. Do you have any memories of home? Memories of growing up? I remember old Debussy's Lake at Burke where we used to swim and ice skate. I remember old Carson's Trading Post. The, 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 uh, back before there were 7-Elevens. A little old Carson Trading Post down at Burke. Carson Trading Post on one corner. The Burke Methodist Church. The One Bay Fire hall and the little gas station garage that was Burke. And I can remember we'd ride our bikes down to Burke. We lived about a mile out from Burke. And we'd pick up the pop bottles as we rode through uh, down the, the road and go to Carson's trading post. He'd get so mad at us because they'd be filled with mud and all dirty. And, and he'd give us two cents each for it. And we'd buy some candy. Memories. What are your memories of home? The tug at your heart. I remember growing up and leaving and driving 1,100 miles to go to college and Come Christmas time or come into the school year, getting in the car and driving, and not, not uh, yeah, 1,100 miles driving all the way back home to Virginia. And I can still remember, I can still see it in my mind's eye when I pull into the driveway. And our driveway went around to the back of the house. And I'd pull around to the back of the house, and the door would fly open, and out would come running mom and dad, throw their arms around me. As a college student coming home with a sack load of dirty clothes in the back seat. Home. I was home. I was home. Uh, what are your memories of home? And then, of course, 
after all of that, Betty and I getting married and all of the different memories along the way with the kids and their childhood and their growing up and things we did and places we went and memories we made. Home. I'm looking forward to, to a better country. It's my home. It's my homeland. I tell you what, we've got a home. And that home is going to be an awesome place. We're going to build memories. We're going to, we're going to build deeper relationships than we ever had here on earth with the people of home. We're going to enjoy home when we get to heaven. We're finally home. And it's going to be rich and meaningful and deep in our relationships. I read a story once of a, a guy, a dad, whose uh, young child tragically died. He was a Christian man, a professing Christian man, but like some, he'd gotten kind of cold in his Christianity, didn't go to church all that much, never hardly ever read his Bible. His wife was faithful church member, servant of God at the church, but his wife told that after the funeral, she noticed that her husband began to take his Bible and go sit down and open it and read it every day. And he wouldn't say anything about what he was reading, but he would be going through it, and all of a sudden he would get a pen out, and he would underline something and take a note. And, and day after day, day after day, every evening, he read his Bible, and he wrote in it. And, and the wife was afraid to say anything. She was just enjoying the change. One day after he went to work, she got the courage to go and find out what it was that he'd been, been writing about. And she went through his Bible, and she found every place he had underlined. It was a... It was a reference about heaven. And every note that he wrote down was a note about heaven. Heaven didn't mean too much to him until he had somebody there. He never thought much about heaven until he had somebody there. All of a sudden, heaven became more meaningful to him. And he wanted to know everything he could learn about heaven. Because that's where his boy was. It was home. It was the place of people, relationships, memories, people that we love. Heaven is home. Let me give you the final description that I find that's so meaningful to me. And, and it goes back to our text in John chapter 14. The final description In John chapter 14, in verse number 2, Jesus Christ said, In my Father's house, in my Father's house. Where's that? It's where Dad lives. It's my Father's house, Jesus said. It's where the Father is. In my Father's house. And I'm going to prepare a place for you and take you to my Father's house. You know what heaven is? It's the place where I'm going to live with my Creator, with my God for all of eternity. The psalmist said in Psalm 73, he asked the question, Whom have I in heaven but thee? Oh, I've got some other people other than God in heaven. I've got a dad in heaven. I've got a dad and mom through marriage in heaven. I've got a lot of people, aunts and uncles and people I've known, funerals I've preached over the years of church members and Christian people. I know a lot of people that are in heaven. But whom have I in heaven but thee? 
Oh God. It's where my dad, my spiritual dad, my heavenly father lives. Eternity with God. I remember after I preached uh, those messages a number of years ago on Mormonism and the Mormon uh, leaders came and were here at our services those Sunday nights. And then we went out and had lunch together and I talked to them and, and they wanted to know more about the salvation that is preached in a church like ours. And we went through the plan of salvation, what it meant to be saved. And, and told them my life story, told them what God had done in my life. And how that my going to heaven had nothing to do with my religion. It had nothing to do with my goodness. It had nothing to do with the things I've done. It was all because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross of Calvary. And of course, he talked about the baptism in the Mormon church and keeping all the rules of Mormonism and trying to become a god so that you can have your own celestial city somewhere and your own celestial wives and have a planet full of your offspring. And I looked at him and I said, you, you heard my testimony. You know, I've never been baptized in the Mormon church. I don't believe Mormon doctrine. I have not done the things that your church teaches I have to do to be able to attain what you're trying to attain. If I died today, where would I be? He said, oh, you'd be in heaven with Jesus. I said, really? He said, yeah. Yeah, you're a good person. You'd be in heaven with Jesus. I said, and where would you be? He said, I'd be up at the third level with God. And I thought, you know, being in the basement with Jesus forever is not all that bad. But the reality is it's not in the basement of Jesus. It's in the Father's house with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit forever. Mr. Peterson composed the hymn over the sunset mountains. He took it to a publisher to try to get the hymn published. And and the publisher looked at the song and said, well, he said, "Uh, this is good. We like the song. We like the song. But we have one recommendation. If you'd, if you'd remove this reference to Jesus, it doesn't seem to fit the flow. Remove the, the reference to Jesus and enlarge a little bit more on heaven. And Peterson left and he said, as he left, he went out thinking, heaven without Jesus? Unthinkable. And he went out and he wrote another hymn. I have no song to sing but that of Christ my King. Heaven is the Father's house. With all of these people represented by a city, with, with, a, with, with a governmental structure that is going to rule heaven in perfection, with, with all of the paradise and the delights that God has prepared for us, a place that's going to be home with people I love and the, the people I'll meet when I get there and the relationships we'll build, it's going to be home. And it's going to be with God forever and ever and ever. What unbearable set of circumstances on earth can push us to the point of despair? 
Because it's at the point of despair that we need to spend some time singing about heaven. Thinking about heaven. Reading about heaven. Focusing on heaven. Let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house, I'm preparing a place for you. And we're going to be together and enjoy home forever. I read the story of a, of a preacher who had a member of the congregation who had, was an elderly uh, individual who had some serious health problems and had been diagnosed with a life-threatening disease and she had been given three months to live. The doctor told her to go home and start making preparations to die. And you know, that's not a bad idea, to make preparations to die. Not a bad idea to get ready for that day that inevitably will come of Christ Harry's is coming. By the way, in case you're interested, if I die before the rapture, I want a Southern Gospel trio or quartet to sing Ben Everson's He's in Glory Now. Because at my funeral, I will be in glory with Jesus. And I want the people who gather at my funeral to sing, He's in glory now. And if Betty does not make it to the rapture and I outlive Betty, I want at her funeral. See, I I plan both of them. (laughs) I want the... Southern Gospel Quartet or Trio to sing Legacy 5's song, Hello, After Goodbye. Because if I attend my wife's funeral, my focus is going to be the time I'm going to spend with her is going to be far longer than the time I've already spent with her. Hello, After Goodbye. You know, it's not a bad idea to plan for when you're going to go. And so she went home from the doctor's office and she began to plan her funeral. She called the preacher up. He went by and stopped by her home. She wanted him to know what scriptures she preferred to have read, what songs she wanted to have sung. She even had a favorite Bible she wanted to be there with her in her funeral service. And they wrapped it all up. The preacher was at the door getting ready to go out. And the, and the lady says, oh, pastor, there was one other thing. He said, what's that? And she said, in the casket, I want, I want you to take a fork and I want you to put it in my right hand. The pastor must have had a puzzled look on, her, on his face because she looked at him. She said, you, are, you, are, you, um, are you surprised? And he said, well, I am a little bit puzzled. She said, well, you know, you know pastor... All my life, I've been a part of church, church events, church banquets, church meals. There's always food involved with church in all kind of settings. And said, at the end of a, a church meal, if someone come and said to me, keep your spoon. She said, I knew we were probably going to get some jello or some pudding for dessert. But if someone came and said to me, 
Go ahead and keep your fork. She said, I knew that there was pie or cake or something substantial coming. And she said, I knew that the best is yet to come. And she said, at my funeral, I want everyone to walk by and see a fork in my hand and scrunch up their eyes and furl their brows and say, what in the world? Never seen that before. And she said, then when you're preaching your sermon, he said, I, she said, I want you to tell the people that I said the best is yet to come. And that's the reality of heaven. The best is yet to come. Those who don't know Christ as Savior, this is as good as it's ever going to get. For those who know Christ as their Savior, this is as bad as it'll ever get. The best is yet to come for those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I love that little poem that was put to music. It says, just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven of taking hold of a hand and finding it God's hand, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of feeling invigorated and finding it immortality, of passing from storm and tempest to an unbroken calm, of waking up in glory and finding it home. Are you going there? Do you remember the day when you were filled with guilt and despair because you knew that you had rebelled against your Creator? You knew there was no way that you could ever earn favor with your Creator. You knew there was no list of good works that could ever make you good enough. You knew that from the depths of your being, you were a rebel at heart and you were bent on disobedience. And when you read the Ten Commandments of God, you realized there was no hope whatsoever for you ever earning heaven. And then someone told you the story of how God loves you. And God came to earth as a man and lived a perfect life, didn't deserve to die. So he willingly took your place. and He suffered your hell for you so that he could offer you a gift that you could never earn, a gift you could never pay for, a free gift called eternal life with God in heaven. And when you heard that story and knew how much God loved you, you wanted what God was offering you. And you prayed and you asked Jesus Christ to come into your life and to save you and make heaven your home. Don't be troubled. In my father's house, I go to prepare a place and you know the way. Doubting Thomas. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ, Jehovah God, creator of all that exists, is the only God that exists. All other gods are man-made inventions to try to figure out a way that they could soothe their troubled conscience by thinking they have a means to have hope after death. But only the creator of heaven and earth, Jehovah God, who came to earth, Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ is real. The only God. And He offers eternal life 
to anyone who will believe what the Bible says about who He is and what He did on Calvary. Have you ever been saved? Do you know you're going to heaven one day? God loves you. God wants you. God paid an immeasurable price to be able to win your heart, to save your soul, to give you eternal life. But the Bible says those who reject Him will never, ever, ever have peace and joy throughout all of eternity.